just wanted to sort of ramble about all the, you know, and another thing. Oh, and by the way, you know, I'm also thinking about this. Was that what was Jesus' intent? Or is there something that holds it all together? Is there sort of an understanding we can come to so that when we come to what Jesus is saying here, that we don't treat it like a whole bunch of individual issues? Because that's the temptation. And that's part of the danger. If you come to it and you say, well, I'll just, I don't want to read the part about anger or, or lust or, or divorce. I just want to read the part about money. And I'll read that. And you sort of grab it and sort of take it on its own. You don't realize that there's a greater context for all of this teaching. There's a greater context for all of what Jesus is, is doing here. There's something that holds it all together. Now, the clues, here, here's the thing. When you, don't, when you come to something and you're reading in the Bible or in any book, this is true of any book, and you don't understand what, what's, what's the basis for what's being said there, what's the rest of the conversation, you go to look at the context. So the easiest thing to do is look at what's been said before it and what's been said after it. So I'm going to give you a couple verses that tell you something about why Jesus is teaching this sermon. And so if you go just before Matthew 5, so if you're actually looking at the text in the Bible right now, just flip to uh, verse 4, or chapter 4 and verse 23. So just flip back a verse. And it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So you hear three things there, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. That's what Jesus was doing, okay? Then, if you, if you were to jump way far forward into chapter 9, verse 35, you'll see it again. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Wow, this is like carbon copy statement, basically. So, what you find between those two statements is exactly that. What those two statements describe, you find jammed in the middle. It's like a sandwich. So, what do you find? First you find he's teaching. He's teaching in the synagogues. What's he teaching? Well, well I mean, he teach, taught in a lot of, he traveled around ta teaching. But what's his teaching? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives you some of his teaching. That wasn't particularly done in the synagogue, that one, but that gives you the gist of some of his teaching. And then chapters 8 and 9 talk about his healing. So what chapter 4 describes about Jesus, what Jesus is doing, and what chapter 9 describes is found in between. Okay? It's found right in the middle. So, but here's the thing that you can learn from these two verses. It's that, far part, where, it's that part where he says he's teaching in the synagogues, but he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming that there is a different kingdom that is at hand. Now, in those days, kingdom conquered other kingdoms. Wasn't necessarily good news all the time. I mean, you know, if you were the Israelites and you were being uh, invaded by the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians or the Romans, which, you know, everybody had a crack at them at one point. But if you were, if you were, if there was a new kingdom coming, you'd say, well, what's the rules of this new kingdom? How do they treat their citizens? And once they're in charge of us, how will we be treated? What can we expect? Is this something that should drain us of all hope? Oh, no, it's them. Or is this something that should maybe get us excited? 
It's just like in Canada, every time we have an election, we ask the same question, right? We say, what will it be like under this new government? What will it be like for me, right? What are the particular laws that they will act? Like when you have elections, they have election platforms. They say, if we're elected, here's the hope we will give you. Or here's the hope we'll take away from you. I don't know, right? You, it depends on how you read the platform, how it applies to you directly, right? So Jesus is announcing that a new kingdom is coming to people. It's his kingdom. It's his kingdom. And so people are going, well, what will it be like in your kingdom? What will it be like if you're the king of my life, if you're the leader who I'm following? What will it be like? And that's what Jesus is, is communicating in the Sermon on the Mount. He's announcing, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So this is good news. This is good news. But exactly how is it good news, you find out in, in, as we go forward. So, who's he speaking to? That's the other thing. Again, I, today I do more of the context stuff because we're going to be in here for weeks and we won't be always doing context as much. He's speaking to, Matthew 5, 1 tells us, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. So it sounds like if you only read that part, and again, context is so important, if you only read that part, you'd think, oh, there's a whole bunch of people there. So he took, went away and just had his disciples around him when he taught this. But you wouldn't be, that wouldn't tell you the whole story because if you go to the end of the chapter, the end of the sermon, again, here's another sandwich. Matthew 7, 28, 29 tells us more of the picture. It says, when Jesus had finished these, saying these things, his sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So not only were his disciples or the people who already adopted Jesus as their leader or the people who say, you're my king, I'll follow you, tell me what it's going to be like in your kingdom, but also there was a crowd there who said, well, I don't know if I'm really willing to follow you, Jesus. I don't know what this is all about, but I, I'm curious what it would be like to follow you, what it would be like to have you as my king, my lead, the leader in my life, what it would be like in your kingdom. You know what, it's just like church every Sunday morning. Exactly like that. Right? Some people are saying, I'm so bought into Jesus. I don't know everything that he wants from me, but you know what? Just tell me what he wants from me. I want to do it because I'm just, I'm already sold. I'm a follower of Jesus, 100% his. He has the right to dictate the terms of my life. If, if I find out something new in the word of God about what he requires, then I realize I'm obligated to do it, but I want to do it because I love him. He's become the treasure of my life. He's my leader. I recognize him as my king. Now, but that's not where everybody's at, right? So other people might say, I'm just, I'm just totally, I'm, I'm curious about this. I'm not totally bought in, but I'm curious about that. If you're here this morning, you're just curious about this, but you haven't bought in, I'm thrilled you're here. Who wants to lead a church where there's nobody here who's curious? That's really great. Or you might even be not curious. You might be saying, man, I'm here because I heard there was a free meal from Kettleston. We're thrilled you're here for the free meal from Kettleston. Like, I mean, whatever the circumstances that have brought you here this morning, we're pumped that you're here. We're really excited that you're here. And so you might identify, as we share this, you might identify with the disciples who say, we're, we bought into you, Jesus, now tell us what's required. Or you might be a little bit farther out on the fringes in the crowd saying, I don't know, I need more. I need, I need to understand more to know whether I can buy into this. Or you might be way on the fringes of the crowd, sort of almost going, I don't know. 
I'm, I got some doubts, I got some skepticism, but, but I'll listen, because I'm open-minded, right? No matter where you're at, here, you can relate to the, the setting for where Jesus told this sermon. So he's teaching his disciples primarily. The crowd is listening in, and they're expecting him to say something about his new kingdom. So what were the disciples expecting? What were they expecting? When he presents his, his, his kingdom, what were they expecting? Now, first thing I would say is probably they're not expecting it to be mostly a heavenly kingdom. And, or, or, okay, let me put it this way. They're probably expecting an earthly kingdom. One of the tidbits I came across in my studies was that, um, and I don't know how, I don't know if I based everything on this, but they said that it was common for the zealots, so, these, so now these, they were an occupied nation. The Roman Empire had come and crushed their army, and now they lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus talks about a kingdom, and he pulls them away into the mountain to tell them it, it would be very similar to some of the other leaders of that day who maybe had thoughts of insurrection. Like they said, let's, form, let's, do a, let's form a coup and throw off the, the Roman oppressors. You know, if we could get enough of us to fight together, possibly we could beat back, you know, the Roman garrisons that are here in Israel. So the author I was reading, he's saying it wasn't so uncommon for people who were, had thoughts of rebellion against the Roman Empire to retreat into the mountains to sort of gather their people, right? So they're not under the watchful eye of the Romans and they could conspire and talk and where can we get weapons and when can we plan our attack and how can we create a new kingdom. Not under the Romans. So it could be, in fact, one of Jesus' disciples is a guy called Simon the Zealot. <laughs> like that's, that basically he was so, he was zealous to see Israel restored to the freedom that it once had when it wasn't under the Romans. So you can just imagine that in the crowd too, there's probably other people who are saying, an earthly kingdom to throw off the Romans here we are in the mountains, there's no Romans here to listen to what we're, we're talking about. Tell us, Jesus, about this kingdom. So it could be that they were definitely expecting something that might have some uh, violent and uh, military overtones. So I want to just read you um, a reflection of, and this is probably good for a lot of us. It's a reflection of a woman, I was reading some of her teaching, and she said, when she was a child in church, she heard the Sermon on the Mount piece by piece by piece. But she never really studied it together as one piece. And so she grew up with certain assumptions about it and, um, and how she, she's going to relate how it may be similar to how the disciples might have approached it. She said, over the years, my piece by piece exposure had reduced Jesus' longest recorded message to nothing more than a handful of self-help sound bites on how to pray, handle money, or deal with anger. As I prepared to teach the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermons, sermon unfurled as a sweeping declaration of the character, influence, and actions of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, articulated with perfect intent by the king himself. No doubt when Jesus' freshly minted disciples seated themselves at his feet on that mountainside 2,000 years ago, they had no idea what he was about to utter. I suspect they had their own expectation of what it would mean to be on the inner circle of the king prophesied to sit on David's throne. A vision that probably did not include poverty of any kind, or mourning, or meekness, or hunger, or thirst. 
nor did it likely include showing mercy, trading outward purity for inward purity, making peace, or enduring persecution. I suspect their visions of walking closely with Jesus involved being the strongest rather than the weakest, the greatest rather than the least, the first rather than the last. Jesus' sermon would have completely toppled their eager hopes to reign and rule with him in power, popularity, and ease. I want to just pause here. The subtitle of my sermon this morning, which I don't know if it's up there, it doesn't really matter. And we're talking about every week, we're talking about Jesus changes everything. So the thing I'm talking about that he changes today is he changes your pursuit of happiness. Jesus changes your pursuit of happiness. Now, these disciples, they were like, well, you know, what's going to make me happy? What's going to make me thrilled about this kingdom Jesus is going to unveil for us today? Well, we're going to walk in power, prestige, fame, popularity, influence, control. We won't be under the Romans, but we'll, be, we'll have power over them. Now, where do we get the phrase pursuit of happiness? That's, that's, a, that's an American phrase, isn't it? What, what's the document it's from? Anyone tell me? The Declaration of Independence. Yes, thank you. So it's from the, you get, you know, you get uh, some points. They're only, you can only cash them in in the States. All right. But, um, yeah, the Declaration of Independence. So let me see if I can find, I have it in my notes here somewhere. There we go. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Just imagine George Washington reading this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the right to pursue happiness is sort of a, it's actually a pretty wonderful right to have. But you know what? It doesn't tell us which way to go to get happiness. It just says, hey, have at her. Go pursue it. We'll give you the freedom to pursue it. But there's no blueprint. The, the Declaration of Independence doesn't tell you how to be happy. It just tells you you have the right to pursue it. So where do I go? Where should I, what should I pursue? Should I pursue money? Should I pursue power, influence, fame, control? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you said, if I only had, I'd be happy. Like fill in the blank. Well, the Declaration, the Declaration of Independence just doesn't help you with that. How can I be happy? Deeply happy. Truly happy. Well, and we try lots of things, right? We've always been there. Man, if I only had this. Ever since we're kids, if I only had this. I'd be happy. And you get that. And then you realize there's something else you want. If I only had that, I'd be happy. And then you get that. And you realize there's something else you want. And it doesn't end. It doesn't end as we become adults as well. We keep running after things that maybe this will make me happy. We always want more. In fact, we always want more of the wrong stuff. Stuff that can't make us happy. Happy. And for the Christian, happiness doesn't come from what we have or what happens to us, great achievements. It comes from who we know. 
we know Jesus as our king. So our experience of Jesus' kingly leadership in our lives actually brings happiness. But it doesn't bring us happiness because it fixes all the circumstances of our lives, that he fixes all the circumstances of our lives so we, that those things are the things that generate happiness. No, actually, we have a great satisfaction in him and what he's done for us and what he promises for us and what he says about us, all those things, so that in terrible situations... In terrible situations, there still can be a deep-seated happiness there because the situation is not the source of the happiness, but the one that we're going through the situation with is. I want to jump back to describing the... the let me just keep, let me keep reading. This is, again, this, this uh, author, I, I love her, what she wrote about here. She says, As I became reacquainted with the Sermon on the Mount, I considered, for the first time, I considered it for the first time in its entirety. Okay, let me pop, pause for a second. My advice to you is as we go through this series, and you say, well, I'm going to read ahead, I would encourage you to read the whole thing in one shot. And do that again, many times. Or listen to it. You know, you've got the Bi- if you've got version or whatever Bible app on your phone, just let the, you know, nice guy with the baritone voice talk to you. And press play and listen. In its entirety. Because the problem is when we just pick and choose and grab, we don't get the whole big picture. This is one sermon. Right? It's like if you said, I- I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to listen to the podcast of Steve's sermon on Sunday. And he said, oh, scrub it over to about here. I'm going to listen to three minutes. Oh, that was interesting. I have no idea what he was talking about. I have no idea what his context was. Boy, I really don't understand what he's doing there. Well, most of us, when we are doing right by the person we're reading or doing right by the person we're listening to, we actually listen to the whole thing that they're saying. Right? And we, all, we hope that people will do that with us. Right? When you're talking to someone, you're explaining a story... How, have you ever had that where you, you actually, let's say it takes you five minutes to explain what happened to you. And then the person who's listening to you, you can tell they only heard a small part of it because they say, what? This happened? He's like, I just explained the whole thing. You didn't listen to the whole thing, though. You only listened to this little chunk. And we want to do right by Jesus in, in listening to his whole sermon. So that's my advice to you. If you don't want this sermon to really discourage you, listen to the whole thing. Listen to the whole thing. And hopefully the context I give today will actually make it a hopeful thing for you. Back to the author I was reading. She says, As I became reacquainted with the sermon and considered it in its entirety, I found that it toppled my own expectations as well. Not just the early disciples, but ours too. Rather than provide me with a checklist of righteous behaviors, it asked of me the unthinkable, an impossible righteousness, one that exceeded the most righteous human example I could imagine. Not only did Jesus mean for me to obey outwardly, he meant for me to obey inwardly as well. In his kingdom, there'd be no walking the line, no asking, how close can I get to sin without sinning? In his kingdom, motive mattered as much as action. Here was no moralism. 
Here was a righteousness only possible by means of a changed heart. Frank Thielman has put it this way, the Sermon on the Mount shows us what life should look like for a heart that has been melted and transformed by the gospel of grace. Let me read that again. The sermon shows us what life should look like for a heart that's been melted and transformed by the gospel of grace. So, I'll read you a little bit more, and then I'm just going to jump to the, my, I think my main point for today. John Stott said it this way. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part, the best known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood, and certainly it's the least obeyed. So why is it the least obeyed? Because it's impossible without God. If you come to a list like this, and I haven't read the whole thing to you. I haven't read you any of the commands yet. But if you come to the commands about money, the commands about your thought life, the commands about your marriage, the commands about uh, your giving, the commands about your prayer life, all those things, the commands about your, your, your word, keeping your word, you come to those commands, uh, I expect that you will despair. I was listening to one guy preach on this topic, and he, he referenced a, a, um, a professor at Texas A&M University back in the 80s. And he said, so this professor gave um, all the students uh, the Sermon on the Mount as a literary assignment and just said, read it and tell me what you think. And he said, nobody responded positively to the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody. He says they responded negatively from every different angle, but nobody responded positively. But what he got from most people was, this is impossible. This is impossible. It's impossible to do these things. It's impossible to live like this. This is ridiculous that anyone would expect anyone to be able to accomplish what this says. And the... the the professor, the university professor who sort of took in all these results from all these different people who said this is a ridiculous expectation. It's, no one could ever possibly do that. He said, I think I finally understand how the first disciples would have heard this. This is impossible. And this is why I say I'm trying my best. I want to try my best today to prevent you from losing all hope when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Because it goes past just your behavior. It goes right to the heart. Right? It doesn't just talk about uh, don't murder. It doesn't just talk about uh, don't commit adultery. It says don't be angry and don't lust. It doesn't just talk about whether or not you should give money to the poor. It talks about how your heart is when you give money to the poor. I mean, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And so people would read this and say, rightly so, they should say, this is impossible. And that's actually normal to have that reaction. That's actually normal to have that reaction. Those students back in the 80s with that assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount for the very first time or to read it in its entirety for the first time, their reaction is normal. 
When we encounter the righteous requirements of God, the holiness of God and who he is, we should be dismayed. We should lose hope. That's normal. There shouldn't be something inside of you that says, oh, no problem, I can do that. No, you should recognize, if, you're, if you are self-aware at all, you should go, I don't think I can do that. And if that's what God requires, then how is there any hope for me? That's the normal response to your first encounter, to the holy, the holy requirements of God. And the Bible says it again and again and again. There's no, no one righteous. There's not one that's totally righteous like God expects. There's no one holy like God. There's no one who does it, who lives sinlessly like Jesus. We've all gone our own way. We've all, we've all turned away from God and gone off on our own path. We all disobey God. We're all rebels of the heart. And so when we encounter the righteous requirements of God, at first we despair. But we don't stay there. And the difference maker is the fact that Jesus has come and lived that holy life that we couldn't live and died a, a, a death on our behalf. The death we probably should have died. So that a transfer can happen in our lives. The fact that we can't live and, and live up to the expectations of, what, of God's holiness, God knows that. You know what? He has compassion on everyone he's made. So if you say, I can't live up to those standards, guess what? God has compassion for where you're at, and God's, gonna, God's sent Jesus because of that. Because you couldn't live up to the holy requirements, he sent Jesus so he'd live up to the holy requirements. And he lived up to those holy requirements so that a transfer can happen. The righteousness of Jesus could be transferred to our account, and the sin in our life could be transferred to him. It's an incredible exchange. It's the greatest deal in the universe, really. And it's a gift. It's something you don't earn. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, I want to tell you the transformation that should happen. First, I can't do this. There's no hope. I give up. But then the good news of the kingdom arrives, and the good news is that Jesus has come for people who can't fulfill the requirements of a holy God. And because of Jesus, we can be righteous. It's imputed righteousness from, from Jesus to us when we believe in him. And on top of that, it gets even better. Now, as we believe in Jesus, as we trust him totally, not only is the righteousness downloaded to our account, but the power of God becomes available for us to be transformed. So, when you read something like, uh, you know, don't just not commit adultery, but don't lust, you say, I can't do that, God. I can't do that, God. But with Jesus, because of Jesus, I not only am counted righteous in that area. Did you hear that? I'm not only counted righteous in that area, but God now gives his power to help me in that area. I can't tell you how many times I've found the solution to the I can't in the moment of I can't. 
Because all that while, I was trying to be good enough for God. I was trying to be righteous. I was trying to be holy. I was trying to do everything right. And then I got to the fact that I couldn't. And that's when I cry out to God and say, I can't. And when I say I can't, I've actually fulfilled the requirements of the very first beatitude. Do you know what these are called? These are called the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? It means you've got nothing. When you come to God, you aren't coming and saying, God, look at my pedigree of all the goodness I have in my life. Look at all my righteous acts. Look at everything I've done for you. You're going to be pretty pleased to have a person of my caliber in your camp. No, how do, every one of us must come to God on the same basis. I have nothing spiritually to bring. I'm poor in spirit. Spiritually, I'm bankrupt. I don't come saying, look at God, what I have to offer you. I come quite the opposite way. God, I have nothing, but you have everything, and you offer it to me. And I receive it, and now I don't, I don't live out of a sense of worthlessness because of that. I live out of a sense of gratitude because of that. My head doesn't hang down. It, it, it's up because of what Jesus has done for you. So when these original disciples in this original crowd heard these words, the words of the Beatitudes, which talk about um, being poor in spirit. Let me just, I'll give you the list really quick. Being poor in spirit, people who mourn, people who are meek, which isn't weakness, by the way. It's power under control, but it's like Jesus. Remember, he was, he was, he was mistreated and he didn't respond with revenge. Uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. It doesn't, it doesn't really sound like those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It doesn't really sound like the people who get ahead in life, does it? And the good news of the kingdom is because of God's intervention by sending Jesus is that these things that seem like the conditions of the losers of life that you find yourself in these conditions, guess what? God wants to make you the biggest winner. And not, you know, he's not, it doesn't mean that your mourning will go away, but that when you anticipate in the future, the kingdom that he, that's here now, and you'll experience in a greater measure in the future, is a kingdom, is a kingdom where he's going to dry every tear. That's what he says in Revelation. He says, even when we, our loved ones die, we don't mourn like the world around us mourns who have no hope. But we have a deep hope inside of us because of the promise of God that he, is, he, will, he makes us his own now, but that's for eternity. And the hope of that future, it, we pull it back into our present. That's the exciting part about it. We pull it back in our presence. So he says, when you're persecuted, I love that at the end, he says, when you, blessed are you, that means happy or fortunate, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What should your response be? Rejoice. Huh? Rejoice? And be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted prophets who were before you. So our response to, to bad circumstances is we rejoice and we are glad. So these words of Jesus, when they first came, they sound like commands that are impossible to obey. But then they become a hopeful description of the future that God has for you. So Chris, I owe this to Chris Trinan. He, he had a really great way. He says, he says, if you read like the commands in the Old Testament, or if you read this new teaching of Jesus, which is like commands in the New Testament, 
it doesn't matter where, the, where you find them. He says, your first response should be, I can't do that. But then you remember, wait. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. This is a description of what God wants to do in my life. And God not only commands that this, I should do this, but he gives me the power to obey. He, get, he brings the power to the situation which will melt my hard heart. So when you read something like, don't just murder, or don't, or don't murder, but don't be angry, it's an exciting promise for your life. It's an exciting promise for your life. Because he's going to give you the power to be, to be able to do it. So this is how Chris Trinan said it, and I loved it. He was actually re referencing the Old Testament commands. So what, what are some of those? Like, uh, thou shalt, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, or don't lie, right? You know, thou shalt not lie. It's like, it sounds like thou shalt not lie. But you know what? It's, it's more than that. Because of Jesus, it's, hey, thou or you in the future shall not lie. It goes from being condemnation to hope. It becomes a pronouncement over your life that God wants to work in your heart. He, wants, he, he sees your anger. He sees your lust. He sees your inability to keep your word. He sees your giving and virtue signaling at the same time. He sees it all. And you know what his hope, hope is for you? He's saying to you, guess what? My kingdom has come. My leadership has come. My power has come. My work for you on the cross has come. This kingdom is good news for you. Because in what you were unable to do on your own, through my power and through my work for, on your behalf, you will be able to do. Not perfectly. But there's going to be a transformation. So these disciples and this crowd are hearing Words that bring great rejoicing to their hearts. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, meek, mourning, hungry, etc. Rejoice. Because God is for you. He sent Jesus to make that absolutely clear. And his power is for you. So that you can rejoice in bad circumstances, but also so that your life can be transformed on the inside. So your heart can be melted, so that it will respond in such a way, so that not just your outer behavior is dealt with, but that your inner posture is transformed. You want to stand with me? Now, that felt like a big stone I was pushing up the hill. <laughs> My prayer for you is that this, these scriptures, as we go through them, they will be incredibly hopeful for your life. That you realize that Jesus sees you in your struggle and comes to provide what you need for, to win in that struggle. And that the thou shall, which once was condemnation without Christ, becomes, hey, thou shall. Thou shall. Because he is going to do the work in your heart. 
I mean, all you need to say is, Jesus, do the work. Jesus, do the work. Jesus, I'm opening up myself to you. I'm depending on you totally for this work to happen. Not my own righteousness, not my own holiness. It doesn't measure up, but yours. First, you declare me righteous. Your word about me is powerful, but your work on the cross also provides that resurrection power that we talked about last week so that my life could be transformed. And Jesus does truly want to change everything. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us just to, to uh, try to drum up some sort of righteousness on our own. You know our condition. You know that before we turn to you, that the kingdom that we're in is a dark kingdom. It's a kingdom where it's more natural to serve ourselves than to serve others. A kingdom where it's more, more natural to be about image than to be about a heart that is changed. And you know that all of our trying to reform ourselves, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go where it should go. Thank you. You see us and you love us in our condition. And yet you want to call us out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. You want to call us out of futility, of efforts that don't go anywhere into depending on the power of your spirit to transform us from the inside out. We're not looking to ourselves and our own strength. We're looking to you. We're looking to you. We're depending on you totally. So, Lord, I pray that every command we're going to encounter in the weeks to come, even as, as we go through that motions, I pray that we'd recognize at first, I can't do this. But because of Jesus, because God sent Jesus on my behalf, to die for me, and to provide resurrection power for me, these things can become my future. So Lord, we just praise you in advance for the work you're going to do in our church. I praise you for hearts that are going to change in the areas of money, in the areas of, of uh, our heart's desires, in the areas of our relationships, uh, in, the, in how we relate to the world around us. I, I thank you for the transformation yet to come because we trust that your word and your spirit are a powerful combination. Lord, we welcome that one-two punch. We welcome that one-two punch, and we pray that you would bring the change, uh, bring your kingdom to us. Help us to embrace your kingly leadership as we go forward and to rejoice today, as you said to those disciples, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. We're going to rejoice today in your name. Amen.